All right, as the uh, great strong bad once said, let's not make a big deal out of this. But I am attempting to be back. Uh, right now, I am recording this in my living room because I don't have uh, my recording space set up, which means you may hear the of my cat roaming around. Uh, but anyways, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead. We'll get started. So um, it's been a while. A lot of things going on for me lately. Life's been pretty chaotic. I've had to handle all that before I could worry too much about internet content, unfortunately. To help me refocus, I decided to go back to a subject that's of special interest to me, and based on the comments on YouTube, to many of you as well. Tornadoes. Today's topic goes back quite a ways compared to topics that I've covered previously, to tornado topics I've covered previously. And to be honest, this is really the tornado outbreak to which all other outbreaks in Arkansas are compared. The tornado outbreak of March 21st, 1952 remains the deadliest tornado outbreak in Arkansas history. Technically speaking, this outbreak is considered to be the tornado outbreak of March 21st and 22nd, 1952. But the tornadoes we're talking about all occurred on the 21st. The outbreak itself was ongoing for two days because it impacted the entire southern half of the United States from Oklahoma east to Alabama. Over the course of the outbreak, there were at least 31 tornadoes, although we can't really know for sure because this was 1952. We weren't really tracking them on radar. It was all based on a damage report. And then you may not have been able to tell when there was a distinct tornado, when it was a tornado family, things like that. Um, so at least 31. A number that we are more sure of is that uh, there were 209 fatalities and more than 1,200 injuries. In addition to causing an incredible number of deaths, this outbreak produced a statistically high number of tornadoes, producing damage indicative of F4 or higher strength which is to say that they produced winds in excess of 207 miles per hour, or 333 kilometers per hour. Tornadoes of F4 strength or higher make up around 1% of all tornadoes that are reported. That means that in an outbreak that produced 31 tornadoes, it would be unusual to have even one F4 tornado. However, the outbreak in March of 1952 produced 11 tornadoes of F4 or greater strength. The deaths in this tornado outbreak were spread out across five states. Four were killed in Alabama, nine in Mississippi, 17 in Missouri, and 67 in Tennessee. However, no state felt the impact as sharply as Arkansas, where 112 people were reported dead. In Arkansas, the deaths were reported across eight counties. Two were killed in Mississippi County, three in Poinsett County, four in Cross County, six in Prairie County, seven in Howard County, 11 in Lone Oak County, 29 in Woodruff County, and 50 in White County. We'll really be focusing on those last three counties for the bulk of the story today, but first, we need to discuss what happened to cause this outbreak. Keep in mind that nothing in weather ever takes place in a vacuum. There are so many tiny things going on in the atmosphere, and a change to any variable, no matter how seemingly minute, would cause the scenario to change entirely. 
That having been said, the setup for March 21st, 1952 in many ways resembles the setup for January 21st, 1999. Granted, we were a bit better able to understand tornadic storm parameters in 99 as compared to 52. So what happened in 52? It all started several days before the 21st. A large, low-pressure system formed and raced across the northern Pacific Ocean, reaching the coast of southern Alaska by March 17th. However, this low would not be the only player on our scene. It spawned a second area of low pressure, and this area moved quickly toward the southeast, through Canada and the Great Plains, reaching northern Oklahoma before making a turn to the east during the afternoon of March 19th. From there, it moved into southwestern Missouri, near Joplin, then shot northeastward as yet another low-pressure system, which had formed in Nevada the day before, made a gradual northeastward turn through northern Texas, eastern Oklahoma, and northwestern Arkansas. By the 22nd, this low would reach Illinois and move to the north. This dance between the two areas of low pressure would take advantage of favorable atmospheric conditions to create a massive area of strong and severe thunderstorms that produced not only tornadoes, but also damaging winds, large hail, heavy rain, and flash flooding. The event began in Arkansas in the mid-afternoon. At 2.45, a tornado touched down near Dirks in Harrod County and barely missed striking the school where classes were in session. 22 homes would be destroyed in the area and seven people killed. Little did anyone know that the tragic situation at Dirks would only be a taste of what was to come. In 1952, Judsonia was a thriving small town of around 1,100 people. It was located along the Missouri and North Arkansas Railroad, which brought people and commerce into the community. It was near enough to Searcy that people were able to easily come and go to the larger stores and businesses located in the county seat. Judsonia was also right in the middle of the strawberry-producing area of White County. While it was a few months before the berries would be ready, by March the farmers were busy tending to their tender crops. On the afternoon of March 21st, the town was buzzing with activity. The juniors and seniors from Judsonia High School were preparing for their annual junior-senior banquet, which was to be held that evening. Meanwhile, many had spent the afternoon at the ball fields, where the 6th grade boys softball team faced off against the boys from Morris School. Those who had been there probably would have initially considered March 21, 1952, a very good day, as 12-year-old pitcher Edward Chapman led his Judsonia Panthers to victory. However, by the time the game ended, the skies to the west and southwest had already begun to grow dark. It looked threatening enough that Brother Cyprian Hill rushed the Morris schoolboys back onto their bus in hopes of returning them to their dormitories before it began to storm. Meanwhile, in Judsonia, life continued to buzz along. Glenn D. Young finished work at the bank and stopped to visit his mother-in-law, Mrs. W. H. L. Woodyard, before going home to his wife. While crossing the street, he stopped to chat with his sister, Myrtle Parker, and Mrs. Claude Marsh. He jokingly shook Mrs. Marsh's car and pointed out the darkening clouds to the two women. Nevertheless, Mrs. Marsh drove off to Searcy. Myrtle's son, Ralph, returned from the ball game and joined his mother, while Glenn went home to rest. His mother, Mrs. T.H. Young, was at Glenn's home in a wheelchair, recovering from a broken hip. Her grandson, and Myrtle's other son, Wayne, was also in the Young house. John Jordan was getting his hair cut at Roy McAdams' new barber shop. Only four months earlier, a fire had consumed Roy's previous shop, and he hadn't been in his new location for very long. John grew concerned by the clouds growing darker outside the shop windows, 
and opted to finish his haircut later. He paid Roy and rushed out to his car. Around 5.25, Ernie Abraham, a worker at Howard McIntyre's filling station, remembered that he had promised to bring some groceries home for dinner. So, leaving work, he headed for Harvey Holmes Grocery, passing the town pool hall along the way, where many men had gathered after work. Across the street, two or three customers were having an early dinner at Alice Brown's lunch car. By the time Ernie arrived at the grocery store, it had begun to sprinkle. As he waited for Harvey to fill the order of Bernie Roth, the rain started falling in sheets. By this point, it was raining so hard that drivers began to pull over. One of those drivers was Ray Parrish, a student headed for the junior-senior banquet, who pulled over in front of the Beals building. The Edel family, consisting of Mr. W. E. Edel, his wife, two sons, Ed and Bobby, and daughter, Glinda Fern, were heading into Jedsonia to sell strawberry plants. L. E. Delaney and his daughter had just returned from Little Rock, and they were parked outside the Delaney Variety Store, waiting for a break in the rain while Mrs. Delaney closed up the shop. She looked out the window and waved at her daughter and husband, and then... At 5.34, the power went out in Jedsonia. The tornado developed two miles south-southwest of Searcy and moved toward the northeast, striking Kinsett and continuing. D.C. Phipps was driving his truck near Jedsonia when a house was thrown into his vehicle. He escaped with only scratches and proceeded to hitchhike to Beebe, where he made one of the first reports from the tornado. Ivy Johnson, Ernie Abraham, Harvey Holmes, and Bernie Roth were in Holmes' grocery when it hit downtown. The window shattered. Ivy ran out the door and he was almost immediately enveloped in a black cloud. The building began to shake and Harvey dived under the butcher block. Ernie told Bernie that they needed to get out of the building. He opened the door with Bernie following, holding his coat. The store across the street collapsed. A five-foot-long sign flew up the street and struck Ernie in the chest before it flew over the two-story Farmers and Merchants Bank and out of sight. Bernie asked if he was hurt and Ernie answered that he didn't think so. They reached a power pole, clinging to it, only for it to be blown from their grasp. Instead, they clung to a fire hydrant, finding it just as the Holmes building collapsed on top of them, breaking Bernie's back. The Edels saw the funnel approaching and ran to shelter in a cafe. The cafe was flattened by the tornado. The old electric theater part of the Beals building's second floor collapsed, falling on top of Ray Parrish's car. Another store collapsed, trapping Mr. and Mrs. Billy Waller, their two children, and Dr. and Mrs. Feltz. Delaney Variety Store collapsed. One moment, Mrs. Delaney had been at the window watching her family, and in the next, she was gone. The men in the pool hall climbed under the heavy tables and clung to them as the building collapsed around them. At the bus station cafe, the door flew open and Ivy Johnson, the man who had fled Holmes Grocery just as the tornado entered town, ran in and joined those sheltering beneath the brick and concrete counter. Roy McAdams sheltered in his new shop as pieces of it rained down around him. Ralph Parker was pinned between a washing machine and an icebox. The elder Mrs. Young was torn from her daughter's arms and thrown near her grandson. John Jordan, who had hoped to drive home before the storm struck, had his car thrown against a railroad car. And then... It was over. After the tornado struck Judd Sonia, it was silent and eerie. Described by some as a yellow twilight with absolute silence. Not a bird's call, human voice, or automobile. Quiet enough to hear a pin drop. It was as silent as a tomb. Then it was broken by the sound of a woman's scream. Over 945 structures in Jetsonia had been damaged or destroyed, including most of downtown. Only the Methodist church escaped unscathed. People began to emerge from the rubble, 
walking the streets in a daze. They dragged themselves like zombies, eyes wide, staring. The damage was greatest in Depot Town, the neighborhood around the railroad tracks. Throughout the town, the dead and injured were everywhere. At least 30 people were killed just in the town of Judsonia. Among those, Mrs. Edel, her son Ed, and daughter Glinda Fern, high school student Ray Parrish, Mrs. Delaney, Glenn D. Young and his mother, Billy Waller and his daughter Jeanette, and Edward Chapman, the winning pitcher from the day's softball game. Harvey Holmes survived crouched beneath the butcher block at his grocery store, but he rushed to his home in Depot Town only to find that his wife had met a much crueler fate. The stories of survival from Judsonia were borderline miraculous. John Jordan survived the tornado throwing his car into a railroad car, suffering only a broken leg and other minor injuries. Roy McAdams managed to shelter in the only place in his new barber shop where a beam fell in such a way to protect him. W.T. Young owned a sporting goods store along the main street in Judsonia, and while his store was destroyed, his dog Rambler, who had been locked inside the building, survived unharmed. Unfortunately, the tornado was not done. It continued to trek to the northeast, causing heavy damage and killing tin in the Bald Knob area. Nine more were killed in rural areas of northeastern White County, and one on the west side of Russell before the storm finally lifted. To compound the tragedy of Judsonia, it wasn't the only part of the state to take serious damage on March 21st. At just about the same time, a large tornado formed in southwestern Lone Oak County. Omer Henley, a truck driver from Little Rock, was in the town of England and heard a sound that he described as a hundred B-52s flying low, then spotted the most perfectly shaped funnel you'd ever seen. Nathan Davis was at his home in town when he saw the tornado approach. Concerned for the structural integrity of his home, he fled the house to shelter outside between the building and his truck. His home was destroyed, but Nathan Davis managed to survive. Unfortunately, many others in England weren't so lucky. Nine deaths occurred in the area, and 40 homes were destroyed, mostly on the northwestern side of town. England also had to endure hail, heavy rain, and fires triggered by the storms. Less well recorded was the tornado that struck the Woodruff County town of Cotton Plant on that evening. Cotton Plant and nearby Hillman were struck, with 214 homes destroyed or damaged. 29 were killed, and at least 180 injured. Power lines and communications were knocked out in many parts of the state, with amateur radio operators filling in the gap as much as possible in order to relay emergency messages. Governor Sid McMath had been speaking in Heber Springs when the storms in White County occurred, and he was rushed to Searcy. He called 440 National Guardsmen to active duty, with 100 in reserve at Camp Robinson and 340 sent out to work in the impacted areas of the state. Rescue teams were organized and would work throughout the night. In Judsonia, aid stations were set up in any building still standing. Doors torn from their hinges were used as stretchers. Within 30 minutes of the storm, the highway was full of people transporting the injured. The Methodist Church was used as triage, with ambulances arriving there to load victim after victim. Unfortunately, emergency vehicles weren't the only ones on the highway. It was said that so many curiosity seekers clogged the roads into Judsonia after the storm that for a time even ambulances carrying the injured were slowed to 10 miles per hour. By 4 a.m. the National Guard began to arrive in Judsonia. 
They were able to shut down looting immediately, but stopping the sightseers took longer. In addition to blocking traffic, the sightseers hindered aid work, peered through the wreckage, and attempted to chat with survivors. Eventually, the National Guard was authorized to require permission for admittance into the damaged area. Reporter and combat veteran Ray Stevens reported that Judsonia resembled a scene of war and recounted that refugees are streaming into White County from all directions. An army detachment is directing traffic and won't let anyone pass except emergency vehicles. Technical Sergeant O.J. Johnson of the National Guard's 176th Ordnance Committee had fought in Europe in World War II and said of Judsonia, this is the worst sight I've ever seen. Hospitals in Searcy were the destination for not only the injured from Judsonia, but Balnab, Kinsett, Donfin, and Georgetown as well. As such, the hospitals soon filled, and ambulances were rerouted to Harding College, the American Legion Hut, National Guard Armory, and even into private homes. Doctors from three counties and volunteer nurses worked through the night. Pallets were set up in hospital hallways to house the injured. The dead were stacked like cordwood, while attention was given first to the injured. In the midst of the chaos, families went from place to place, hoping to find their loved ones among the injured. Only a few hours after the tornadoes hit, Little Rock banker J.V. Satterfield set up a fund to aid the victims. The state's largest Red Cross chapter coincidentally met during the time of the storm, and they were able to quickly begin organizing and mobilizing. 250 pints of blood plasma were loaded onto a Chicago and Southern Airlines flight from St. Louis to Little Rock that evening. 200 pints were immediately sent out to the affected areas. The Red Cross and Salvation Army arrived early on the morning of the 22nd, first working out of the Methodist Church, before setting up more permanent headquarters at the Elliott Hotel and Fulton Hollingsworth House, respectively. Reporters and photographers also began to arrive in the area, and and the true devastation was shared with the rest of the nation. Photographer Jack Hogan surveyed the scene from an airplane and estimated that one half of Judsonia was destroyed and three quarters of it damaged. Farrell Connor, secretary of the Batesville Chamber of Commerce, said the town looked like a giant steamroller had crushed everything in sight. Governor McMath, Senators John L. McClellan and J. William Fulbright, and Kinsett resident Congressman Wilbur D. Mills visited the area to survey the damage. The day after the storm was cold, with temperatures falling to at or below freezing. With no gas or electricity, the National Guard used rubble to build bonfires on street corners. People huddled around the burning remains of their homes and belongings just to stay warm. As the response became more organized, people gathered around posted lists of casualties, which were frequently updated as the dead were identified and those previously thought dead were found among the living. On the Sunday after the tornado, more than 100 met in the basement of the Methodist Church for a brief devotional service. Meanwhile, outside, heavy equipment from the Arkansas Highway Department was being utilized to clear debris from the streets. Those who had died in the storm could not immediately be laid to rest as the cemetery in town was buried beneath the ruins of the town. By Monday, Evergreen Cemetery was cleared enough that a mass funeral for 11 victims was held. Three tents were set up on the cemetery grounds. Beneath one tent lay Mr. and Mrs. D. N. Law, Mrs. Ben Huff, Miss Bertie Conley, Claude Bennett, Walter Rumble, and Lindsay Johnson, all of whom had attended the Baptist Church. The second tent sheltered members of the Methodist Church, Mrs. Charlie Teague, Luther Barr, and four-year-old Linda Carolyn McAdams. 
Mrs. T.H. Young was the lone resident of the third tent, as her funeral had been held in Searcy on Sunday. Help arrived in the area from all over the country. By the 24th, $1 million in supplies had already arrived in Arkansas, with an additional $4 million expected in the days to come. Boys from Harding College, prisoners from Tucker Farm, and a band of Mennonites from Louisiana worked alongside the residents of Judsonia. More than 20 insurance adjusters arrived in the Judsonia area in order to settle claims. 90% were claimed within one week. A significant donation was collected from the town of Warren, Arkansas, which had suffered 55 deaths in a tornado only a decade before. However, no less significant was the 2450 donated by prisoners serving time at Tucker Farm and the 32 cents sent from a 12-year-old boy in Gary, Indiana. A team of investigators from the University of Chicago came to Judsonia to study how people handle times of disaster. That team was led by Charles Fritz, Associate Director of the Disaster Project of the National Opinion Research Center from 1950 to 1954. His team consisted of 25 interviewers, primarily graduate students in social sciences and psychology at the University of Chicago. His work was compiled in a report written with Harry Williams in 1961, but not published for over 25 years. In 1996, Enrico Quarantelli, one of the members of the team that visited Judsonia, had the report published. In it, Quarantelli himself reports several findings that were considered unexpected for the time and still fly in the face of many modern stereotypes about times of disaster. For instance, he found that panic is an extremely rare response in disaster. In fact, not a single case was documented in Judsonia. Only 2% of the surveyed population showed any form of uncontrolled emotional expression. Instead, a more common form of initial response was a kind of shock-stun behavior. Quarantelli wrote that even in the worst disasters, people maintain or quickly regain self-control and become concerned about the welfare of others with most of the initial search, rescue, and relief activities being undertaken by the survivors themselves before the arrival of outside organized aid. The team found that reports of looting and disasters are grossly exaggerated. In fact, rates of theft and burglary actually decline. Much more is given away than stolen. Other forms of antisocial behavior, such as aggression towards others and scapegoating, were found to be rare or non-existent. They found that most disasters, including the Judsonia tornado, produce a great increase in social solidarity among the stricken populace. Of particular interest was a temporary breakdown of customary social restraints between white and black residents, with aid and emergency services being shared based on need rather than race until the intervention of outside agencies. In the study of the White County tornado, all persons who reported changes in the quality of social relationships reported that those relationships were strengthened. Not a single respondent reported the breaking or weakening of a relationship with anyone they knew before the tornado. Around 53% of the sample surveyed reported that they noticed changes in people following the tornado. Of those, 37% reported that they felt people were more friendly, cooperative, or considerate. 12% reported that people were more religious and 10% reported a variety of changes in which they perceived people as acting better than previously or than was expected. Only 6% perceived any kind of negative change. 
Around three weeks after the tornado, a random sample of the Judsonia population was asked a series of questions about their overall sense of deprivation following the disaster. More than 75% of those interviewed reported that they had not suffered great deprivation. More than half felt that they were less deprived than others. And not a single person reported feeling more deprived than others. The tornado that tracked through Judsonia would later be estimated to be an F4. The one in England, an F3, and the one in Cotton Plant, an F4. The Judsonia tornado was the deadliest of the outbreak and the fourth deadliest recorded in Arkansas history. Fifty were killed by this one tornado, more than 300 injured, and damages totaled more than $2.5 million, more than $27 million today. The outbreak as a whole caused the fourth highest number of tornado fatalities within a 24-hour period. It also had the fourth largest number of F4-plus tornadoes of any outbreak, surpassed only by the 65 Palm Sunday outbreak, the 74 Super Outbreak, and the 2011 Super Outbreak. That having been said, perhaps the best way to summarize this event isn't in numbers and statistics, but in the words of the Arkansas Gazette writer Lynn Wright. One thing can be said with certainty about the last night in this area. It was hell. Thank you for listening.